Jesus, it's an honor to be able to open your word to us, Lord, the word that's been faithful to so many believers throughout the past uh, 2,000 years. Lord, and even further before that, all of your people have read your word and and, uh, understood your messages to them. Uh, Lord, and and we just come at the end of this trail of so many people who have believed in you and have trusted your word and have never once found you to fail them. Never once, Jesus, have you given up on us and never once has a man been disappointed in you. God, this world is so quick to disappoint us. It's so quick to show how unfaithful it is. And even we are quick to show our own unfaithfulness. But you, God, never fail. And so, Lord, as we ask you in in just humility to speak to us through your word, Lord, we believe that you won't fail us now. We believe that you will fill us with your spirit as we come and knock and seek and ask. And we don't stop knocking. We don't stop seeking. And Lord, we don't stop asking for you to be our Savior, for you to change our hearts, make us more like you, Jesus. Each one of us can see in our hearts areas where we are not like you. And Lord, we want to be like you more. And so, Lord, we just, we just bow before you and we ask humbly, Lord, that you would come in, change us with the power of your Holy Spirit. And we believe it. And everyone who believes it said, Amen. All right. Well, we've been in uh, the book of Ephesians. And last week we looked at, or not last week, last week was Sunday, so we kind of did a special message for Easter. But the week before that, when we were in Ephesians, we looked at the threefold unity of the church and how the book of Ephesians uh, teaches those things. And how when there's all these apparent divisions and denominations and all these different church buildings and different church is, churches out there, that what do they all have in common? And, and is God upset with all these divisions? And we looked at it from his perspective. And from his perspective, they all are united in a very, three very important ways. Number one, they were made alive together. Number two, they were raised together. And three, they were seated together with him. And so from God's perspective, Jesus' perspective, everything's okay. His church is doing exactly the way he wanted. And so we looked at our hearts and maybe we have this better than thou mentality or maybe we think we're doing better than other churches and we just, we want to seek the Lord and have soft hearts when it comes to that issue. Do I agree with what every church teaches? No. Do I agree with how they do things? No. But do I love them? Yes. Have I been raised together with them? Hopefully. And, and is God working in our lives? Absolutely. And, uh, and so we, we talked about all those issues. Well, now Paul makes a transition to the most important division between all these churches. Because there is division among some churches. And there's some churches who trust in Jesus. And then there are some churches who trust in works. And that's a very big division. And it is something that is very important to understand. And maybe we ourselves have been caught up in this works lifestyle, in this works Christianity for a, a long time in our life. And it's something that we can be freed from and saved from. And so today's message is called The Three Works. 
Because like we've been studying the book of Ephesians and we've seen that all these groups of three are found in the book of Ephesians. So the one that we're looking at today is the three works. So let's start with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, and let's go from there. So chapter 2, verse 7, he says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So grace, grace. If you've been here for any length of time or if you're going to be here for any length of time, you are going to hear the term grace, the word grace used thousands and hundreds of thousands of times, hopefully even more, because it is my focus in my life. It is how we correctly relate to God. It's absolutely vital to understand the word grace and what it means. It's the, it's the waterfall of God's blessings and his life that's falling from heaven onto his people. It's God's resources. It's his abilities. It's his help. It's his hand of strength in our life. It's God's intervention into my life and your life with his power. It's something we all want to see. I'd love to see God's grace in my life. A great definition for grace is that it's all that we could ever need or want in our lives, freely given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. All that we could need or want, freely given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And it is free. Yes, absolutely. Grace is free to us. But it cost God so much. And people will come and say, they'll, they'll challenge you on this, and they'll say, you just teach that free grace. You teach that sloppy agape. You teach that, oh, that that's, not, that's not how God works. Nothing's free with God. And I say, you know what? It actually is free to us. It's free to us, but it costs him a whole lot. It cost him his son. It cost him death on the cross and that separation from God the Father. Jesus paid an awful price for us to have this grace. But to you and me, it is free. And in fact, the value of it, if we could put a value, this verse actually helps us. And it gives a word that says it's, it's described as exceeding riches. He couldn't just say it's riches. He had to put that term exceeding on the front just meaning always growing, like you could never understand how great it is. I like the sound of that. Because if, if you ever gain an inheritance, or if you ever you know, have a rich uncle that dies, or a rich grandma and grandpa, maybe you're hoping for them to die right now, and you're thinking, man, it'd be great to get an inheritance. Well, when you do, you, get, you go into this little room, and this, this guy called the, or girl called the executor of the will has a little conversation with you. And, and they take some time in this little room to explain to you all the wealth and riches that has now come into your possession. They explain to you, well, he had this estate out in Liverpool or, you know, that's how I think of it, is the English lands. So you have all these inherited, and they explain to you, okay, so you have these servants over here that belong to you now, and you have this money, or maybe he wasn't that rich, here's 40 bucks. But he still will take time and explain to you what your inheritance is. Well, Paul here says that we are going to have the same exact little meeting, except this explanation of the grace that's been given to us, our inheritance, 
this kindness that Jesus has showed to us, this explanation of how good God has been to us is going to happen up in heaven and it's going to take eternity to get through it. So if you ever wondered, have that question, are we really going to be playing harps on clouds for all of eternity? Because that sounds incredibly boring. I don't have any desire to learn the harp. My mom plays the harp, it's beautiful, but I could imagine after a thousand years, I'd get kind of bored of that. But no, we're, we're explained a deeper meaning of eternity here. And he says that in the ages to come, he's going to be explaining the riches of his grace and the, his kindness towards us. Man, that's going to be a good meeting. It's going to be a good meeting. And you think, will it really take that long? Does God care that much about me? Has he shown that much kindness to me? And I think I'll just say, wait and see. Let's wait and see how much God has cared for you in this life. Have you ever wondered if, you know, if God was for you or against you? And this, this verse is a great verse to answer that question. You see, God is for you. And how do we know that he's for you? It's the kindness of Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that question. His heart of love is for you. His love is the proof of God's goodness. In fact, how do we know that God thinks good about you? We look at Jesus. He is the embodiment of God's feelings towards you. Some people think that God's just this craggy old man up in heaven with scraggly white hair and lightning bolts in his fist just hoping that we do the wrong thing so he can strike us with these lightning bolts. But Jesus says he is the perfect image of God. He's God's son, which means he is exactly what God is. And if you want to know what God thinks about something, you need to look at Jesus. He's that perfect reflection for us. And this is a truth that can melt the hardest heart and it can cause the worst sinner to repent. Because you think, what does God think about me right now when I just committed adultery? Well, the Bible actually tells you exactly what God thinks about that. Look at the woman caught in adultery. How did Jesus treat her? What did Jesus think of her? He was there not with a a lightning bolt and condemnation. No, he was there with love and resources to live a godly life. He said, go and sin no more. Repent. Follow me and you're going to have the resources that you need. Trust in me. And you're going to be okay. And we, we, we go through all these different circumstances in our life. And we think somehow that, that those people that Jesus was talking to were the lucky ones. Oh, it'd be so great to be that, that woman caught in adultery. So just get let off free from all her... And, and is that really for everybody? And the answer is yes. That grace is available for every person. And when we understand that, when we're reading through the Bible and we hear those loving words of Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and says, that's for you. I'm speaking to you directly. You're that woman or you're the tax collector or you're the thief. That's when the Lord comes to you and offers you his grace. See, when we get to heaven, God is going to take us aside 
And he's going to look you in the eye and he's going to say, you have no idea how much I love you. You really don't get it. I love you so much. Look at this part of your life. Look at how I was praying for you and how I worked in your life and protecting you and you never even knew it. Look at this thing over here. Yes, it seemed like hard to you, but now I can show you my great love for you and my hand of protection in your life. I can show you now that we're up in heaven in these ages to come, that even when we doubted, even when we drifted, even when we despaired, even when we went through all the sufferings that we went through, he never failed us. He always supplied what we needed, and everything we asked from him, he did. He gave us his grace. There is nothing in this world like being loved. It's something that men have fought wars over and given their riches and their lives for. And God loves us. And he says for all of eternity, that's not going to stop. I'm going to be loving you and you're going to understand it more fully each day. As eternity goes on, you're not going to wake up one day and say, well, guess that about covers it. That's about how much Jesus loves me. Nope. It's going to go on and on and on and go deeper and be more glorious. It's going to be amazing. So we can depend on him. If he loves you that much, you can depend on him today, even when you're suffering, even when you're going through hard times, even if you're shy or any of these things. Spurgeon has a great quote on grace. I love quoting Spurgeon, so here you go. So it is with the grace of God that as much grace as you want... He has a great deal more than that. The Lord has as much grace as the whole universe will require. And he has vastly more. He overflows. All the demands that can ever be made on the grace of God will never impoverish him or even diminish his store of mercy. There will remain an incalculably precious mine of mercy as full as when he first began to bless the sons of men. Love that quote. David Guzak says, One way we see the greatness of the grace of God is to see how he begs men to receive it. When we, off- when, we, when we offer a gift to someone and they refuse it, we are likely to allow them to refuse and leave them alone. If you give them someone a, a Christmas present and they say, I don't want your gift, you may say, fine. Don't take my gift. But God doesn't leave it there. He offers us a gift of grace and then he begs, he keeps coming back and saying, receive this gift, receive this gift. And he doesn't leave us alone. He begs us to receive it. Let's look now at chapter 2, verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so let's focus on the first little part of this. But this, this little group of verses you can describe as the three works. Okay? So the first little part says, for by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. According to a recent poll, 88% of of Catholics and a majority of Presbyterian and Methodist evangelizers, though who actively share their faith, believe that if 
that if people are generally good or do enough good things for others during their lives, that they will earn a place in heaven. But this verse says salvation is by grace. By grace alone. By His grace alone. And not of works. So if the church, if 88% of one group and a majority of another group of the church believes that, what is going on? Have they not read this verse? Or is there just a a general lack of the Word of God being taught in their churches. I don't know. But we need to understand the truth. This subject has been hotly debated for centuries, and it even this verse has even brought down entire empires. People have a very hard time just simply accepting the mighty truth of this verse. And why is that? Because we feel like we have something to offer. The world even spreads this message from the youngest age in school, and as they're going to school, or even in pre-kindergarten, or on TV, this message goes out there that says, if you just offer your best, that's all you can do. Just keep giving your best. Just keep giving your best. And it'll probably be enough. I mean, if, if it's not enough to give your best, then God must be this mean and cranky, guy up in heaven, and you know what? We should rebel against him anyway. If my best isn't good enough for you, God, then I don't want to serve you. That's a very common idea. That's a very common rebellious thought in the world today. If my best isn't good enough, then why would I want a God like that? And they completely misunderstand that God is a God of love. He loves you. But He's also a God of justice. And you've wronged. You've sinned. And if He was a God of justice, He has to be just. He can't ever change. But yet, He's a God of love. And so He's offered us this grace of salvation. And He said, I can take care of your sin problem. I can take care of it. You just have to accept it. And you'd think that a free gift would be more freely accepted, but no, we have this heart that says, I, I have something to offer. I got something I got to give. I got to be worth something. And God says, you're worth so much. If you just knew how much you were worth, how much I gave for you, but you do have an inability. And that inability is to save yourself. That inability, I'll take care of. But it's an inability nonetheless. No one can get out of it. So people go about their lives fighting this internal battle with their consciences and with the Holy Spirit, constantly saying, I, I've surely done enough good things to go to heaven, right? I mean, I'm, I'm better than that guy. I'm surely better than that girl. I'm better than my parents. I'm better than Hitler. Well, I'm doing my best anyway. You know what? I, I can't do any better. I can't do any better. And God's law, those, those pesky Ten Commandments, they stand there with their arms folded, unchanging and unsympathetic, and they just say, you've failed. You've, you've fallen short. And you say, I've tried, and it says, you've failed. 
And then people give up. Or they keep trying till they become bitter old people. In one of his sermons, A.C. Dixon told of an incident that took place in Brooklyn, New York. A detective had been looking for a local citizen, finally tracked him down in a drugstore. And as the man began to make his purchase, the officer laid hands on the citizen's shoulder and said, You're under arrest. Come with me. Stunned, the man demanded, What did I do? And the detective calmly replied, You know what you did. You escaped from the Albany Penitentiary several years ago. You went west, got married, and came back here to live. And we've been watching you. We've been watching for you since you returned. Quietly, the man admitted, it's true. But I was sure you'd never find me. Before you take me in, could we stop by my house so that I could talk with my family? The officer agreed. So they got to his home and the man looked at his wife and asked and said, Haven't I been a kind husband and a good father? Haven't I worked hard to make a living? Haven't I done my best? His wife said, Of course you have. But why are you asking me these questions? And her husband proceeded to tell or explain uh, what had happened and how he was now under arrest. He apparently had hoped that his record as an exemplary husband and father would impress the officer. Even so, he was still an escaped criminal. Though he, had, though he was right with his family, he was wrong with the state of New York. He was right with his family. Everyone around him said, you're doing just fine. But the state of New York had other thoughts. And something happens at this point in many people's lives when we reach the end, when we realize that no matter how how good I am a father or husband or worker or employee or how good I think I am, I just can't seem to measure up to God's standard. Many times someone will actually stop and cry out to God for his help. Cry out to God for grace and say, I can't do this anymore. I surrender. And God says, finally, I've been waiting for you to surrender and give up. Stop trying to do this on your own and I'll give you grace. To get to this point, we have to admit that we can't do anything to save ourselves. We have to see on how worthy we are. We say, sometimes we say, if only I had a do-over, but even if I did have a do-over in this life, a mulligan, I don't even think I'd get that one right, so what's the point? Then we learn of grace. Then we hear of grace. We find out that God knew all this about us already. God saw our sin and made provision for it, and he took all of it and bore it on the cross. And the, the day we repented and believed, we were saved, right? Amen. We, can't, we said, I can't save myself. I believed in his work on the cross and everything we had been trying to obtain for all those years freely given to us. And gift, here it says, it says give grace. Gift is the language of grace. And it's so handy in your relationship with God as you guys go from here and you're, you Observe your own life. It's so handy to remember that give is the language of grace. When you're talking to God or you're talking about other people or you're talking about yourself, 
When you're talking about, I need to earn something, or maybe I could deserve something, what you've done is you've transitioned from grace back to the law. You say, oh man, I just need to work a little bit harder. I need to get up and read my Bible a little bit more. I need to try just a little bit harder. And we've got to understand that though we are transitioning away from grace when we do that, we need to come back and repent and say, God, forgive me for trying to do this in my own strength. And Lord, I'm asking again for your favor, your help, the grace that Jesus gives. I want to ask and then I want to believe. I want to ask Jesus and then depend on that help. Say, Jesus, I don't want to do this sin anymore. You put it in my heart, then I need to stop that. And so, Jesus, would you help me? And then you take a step in that direction. And that step was not a work. That step was faith. You're depending on him and no longer depending on yourself. And that is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Our victory is always not of ourself. It's always a gift from God. And anyone who thinks that they have accomplished something good in their life of themselves is wrong. It is always a gift of God. Well, this verse also can create some thoughts in us saying, well, that faith, you know, is that faith just a gift of God? Do I need to be asking God for the gift of faith just to, just to get by in this life? Well, let's see here. Clark the scholar emphatically states that the original Greek is clear in, in noting when it says that the gift of God, the it, is referring to salvation and not faith. The Greek scholar Dean Alford also clearly pointed out, pointed out that this not of yourselves referred to salvation and not faith. Then I'll quote Clark here. He says, It may be asked, Is not faith the gift of God? And the answer is yes, as to the grace by which is produced, by the grace or power to believe. And the the act of believing, they're two different things. So God gives you the gift of grace to give you the power to believe, to trust him. But the act of believing is on you. Continuing this quote, it says, Without the grace or power to believe, no man did or can believe. But with that power, the act of faith is a man's own. God never believes for any man, no more than he repents for him. The penitent, through this grace enabling him, believes for himself. And it's very important for us to understand because certain believers, who I have no doubt believe and love Jesus, will come and say, you have nothing to do with your salvation. And truth is, we have nothing to do with the power that saves us. But the access to that power is by faith. And that's very clear in the scriptures. It's always believe and you will be saved. Believe. Regeneration happens always after belief in the Bible. And that's a very important thing for us to understand. We are regenerated. We are made new. We're born again. But in the Bible, it's always after belief, after that. And the Lord does give us the grace to believe, that power, ability to believe. But now we get into the three works. And so we're just going to look quickly at the three works. Work number one, it says, It's not of our works, lest any should boast. Salvation could not 
could never be by works because then the better people could have something to brag about to the lesser people. But this way, God receives all the glory and all men are exactly the same. Galatians 2.21 is a really important verse to understand and memorize and highlight. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Man, if in another place in Galatians, he says, if there was a law that could have been given, that could have brought life, surely God would have done it by the law. Because it was a big pain to die on the cross. But there was life no other way. Righteousness could not come in any other way. The biggest reason why Jesus came and died on the cross is because every single person needed it. It wasn't just for the bad people. It was for all people. God is a God that meets our needs and no matter what we thought we needed, we actually needed Jesus. We needed our sin taken away, and that's what Jesus accomplished. Any thought that we have of, I'm doing all right without God, it's simply deception and rebellion against his amazing gift of grace. See, our works, born from our resources, can never save us and can never change us. That's why it's awesome to be a Christian, because our success, our growth depends on another person on their resources. It's our dependence on the person of Jesus daily in our life for our resources that our spiritual life flows from. And this is where our brothers and sisters sometimes struggle with the meaning of sacraments and church things like baptism and communion and going to church and everything else that are works. Because they are works. Baptism, no matter how you look at it, is a work. And are we saved by works? No. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? No. Should you be baptized? Yes. You should. It is is important. The sacraments are important. Taking communion is, is vitally important to your walk with the Lord and remembering and depending upon Him. But there are two relational realities that are not works though, that do bring salvation, that do bring access to this grace. See, is God going to give you more grace if you take communion more often? No. Is God going to give you more grace if you get baptized? No. Is God going to give you more grace if you help more old ladies across the street? No. Is God going to give you more grace if the Broncos win? Maybe. (laughs) We... God, our actions cannot produce more of God wanting to bless you. God wants to bless you as the filthy, sniveling, miserable person you are. He loves you. And he wants to bless you. And you can't earn that blessing. And he has his grace for you. But it's not from our works that we get it. But there are two relational realities that are not works that do gain us access to this. And I'll talk about it many times in the course of our relationship together. Number one is humility. Number two is faith. James 4, 6 says, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Also repeated in 1 Peter 5, 6, 5, 5. God gives grace to the humble. It means if you want more of this grace, if you want more of God's blessings in your life, if you want more God working in you, humble yourself. Say, God, I need it. I need you. Humble yourself. And he'll give it. But 
be prideful, and that's a sure way that God will say, fine, do it on your own. See what happens. See how good you do. And it's, it's sad, but that should be the first thing a believer learns, right? This is the key. This, you want to do something for the Lord? Here's what you do. Humble yourself. Well, that sounds like work. No, it's not. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a relational reality. It's something inside, not outside. And then the second one is faith. Romans 5.2 says we have access to this grace in which we stand by faith. So humble yourself, ask for it, and then faith means you believe it. You believe that he's going to give you this grace. You believe it. The second work is his works. Verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship. Workmanship is the Greek word poema, which means a beautiful poem. A work of art. So if anyone's doing work around here, the work we need to understand is not our works, but his work. Him making your life look like a beautiful poem. And you might look at your life and think, oh, this is not really anything that I can make sense of. It might, probably isn't anything to God, but he's actually in the process of making you beautiful. The best movies are always the ones that have the most challenging circumstances, don't you think? I'll nerd out and quote Lord of the Rings again because Samwise's speech at the end of the Mountain of Mordor is pretty much the greatest thing ever recorded on film. Just picks up someone and carry them up the mountain even though they're at the end of their rope. Man, it's awesome. And, and like you, your favorite movie probably has a humo- humongous challenge. And that's where the human spirit is, like where we see the best And the thing is, in your life, you might look at your life, and my life is nothing like the Lord of the Rings, you might say, or nothing like any good movie, and my life is a horror story, or a comedy, where I'm the joke. And we think, why am I going through all these things? But God is working in your life. You are His, and I can say that with the most assurance, because it's just in the Bible, I just read it, so I have to believe it. Your life is exactly what God has wanted. And you say, well, that's unfair, and I'm mad at God because of that. Okay, but you're going to see it was for your good. You're going to see the best movies have the biggest challenges, and the best stories in heaven are going to be the ones that went through the biggest challenges here on earth. And people are going to be like, whoa, you're so beautiful. You're shining like stars, and this is so much better than a movie just looking at you. And you're going to be like, yeah, because I had a hard life. And God was working in me in that whole, every step of the way. And now for all these millions of billions of years, he's taking every moment to show me how much he was working. And so be encouraged right now in your sufferings that he uses our tough situations, the death around us, the struggles and trials to produce glorious fruit. It hurts. It feels like death. And the potter always throws that potter's wheel on and the pot screams out and says, that's pressure, I don't like it and I'm dizzy from the spinning and this is uncomfortable beyond measure. And I cannot stress enough how painful our lives can be. And yours might be right now. I could describe to you my own pain and the things that I've been through, betrayal, abandonment, but you could tell me your own. I'm sure. And what makes all these things worth it? 
Why? Why can I say that I say right now that I still believe in God and that I still trust Him and I do still follow Him after suffering, in my mind, horrific things? I see how He's changing me. I can see that I'm becoming His workmanship. I am His poema. I am being changed. Everything I go through as I walk with the Lord produces character and fruit in my life. And I'm starting to fight it less. I'm not at all in a place where I don't fight it at all. But I'm starting to find it, fight it left, less. There was a time where I was like, you know, oh, I'm gung-ho for suffering, and I think everyone should suffer like I did. <laughs> I'm not there anymore. <laughs> but I, I think that God definitely uses it. You see, I used to think that if I made good choices throughout my life, that I wouldn't have to suffer bad things. Like I watched my, my family and my classmates, my friends suffer. I used to think if I just made the good choices, if I went to Bible college and I read my Bible and I prayed, that God would somehow protect me from suffering. I had that idea. But now I've learned that I get to suffer as part of my relationship with the Lord growing deeper. He uses it to change me. He is glorified when I trust in Him. He uses my failures to teach me to trust in Him more. See, when you suffer, sometimes you just bomb out, don't you? Amen. And, and that's okay. Because God will still use that. There's nothing wasted with us in the Lord. Good, bad, we can't see it producing the fruit in our hearts. We don't get to choose what God brings into our life, but we do have the guarantee that it is His process of making us a beautiful work of art for His glory. What a promise. So important for us to understand. I want to glorify the Lord now more than I want to be comfortable. I want to glorify the Lord God now more than I want to be popular. I want to glorify God more right now than I even want to be happy. When Jesus makes something, here's the question, does it turn out good? Well, what's his track record? What can we see that he's made? Well, creation, let's go back and read Genesis. It says he created all these things and what is God, most harshest critic maybe out there? What is his opinion of it? It was all good. Tell you, look at man. And said it's not good <laughs> that he's alone. That was a joke. <laughs> Women should have been like, yeah, amen. But so the third work is the good works. Wood says, this this theologian Wood, works play no part at all in securing salvation. It's true. But afterwards, Christians will prove their faith by their works. Here, Paul shows himself at one with James. I've been doing some study in church history. And, you know, Martin Luther, when he was going through the whole Reformation and he was looking at the Bible, he was upset when he read the book of James because he was all about salvation by faith, salvation by faith. And as he read the book of James, he felt like, man, he really stresses the works. And I don't know if it should be included. He didn't say it shouldn't be in the Bible, but he said, if I had my way, it wouldn't be in the Bible. So he kind of put it as like an appendix in his Bible. Or, but he still couldn't deny that it was the Word. 
But here we have to understand that works, when we look at our life, works are important. Spurgeon said, it seems strange to the ear that good works should be negatived as the cause of salvation and then should be spoken of as the great end of it. In other words, works can't do anything to get you saved, but when you are saved, works have to be there. Works have to be there. It is the end of it. But it's true. The end of a life trusting in Jesus and gaining access to his grace through humility and faith, neither one of them is works, as we learned, is that your actions are transformed to be Jesus-like actions, God-glorifying actions, not by any of your efforts or merits, but just the fruit that naturally produces in the garden of a believing heart. That's what our good works should be. But here's the problem. This is great. Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. We know that verse. Yet, there's a verse that says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So what's this kind of, how do we navigate through these things? Well, it's really no problem at all. When your eyes and and your mind and your heart are focused on grace, God's resources and ability to change you into a person who has good works demonstrated in your life. Have you ever heard that old phrase that mothers tell their children, choose your friends wisely because you'll become like the ones that you're hanging out with? You guys heard that? Well, I tell my kids that. You gotta choose your friends wisely because you become like them. And God makes us Christ-like as we spend time with Christ. He makes us like that. Plus, Jesus desires for there to be a family resemblance between us and the Father. He's adopted you. So he's like, let's all hang out together and be the same way. The problem comes, my dear friends, when we reverse the order of these three works. Check it out. If you just read your Bible backwards, you'd have a problem right here. When we put good works first, and then we think that God will work through our good works to make us something acceptable, and then someday we'll be able to not do our good works anymore, and we'll just be able to rest When we do it that way, nothing works. So if you get the three works backwards, then nothing works. Don't even, you know, we don't want to stand on our head as a Christian and get these things upside down. You know, we don't want to get these things out of order. You even need to be careful when you read your Bible in Australia. You don't want to get it upside down. It doesn't work like that. We are saved by grace, not from our good works. And then God works in our lives, creates depth and spiritual life. And then good works are produced. They come naturally. They flow. And it's such a travesty that sometimes when people get saved, people say, now you need to go get a haircut. Now you need to change your clothes. Now you need to stop doing all the things that you were doing. Was God concerned about them stopping before he saved them? No, he was willing to save them as they were hookers and drug dealers. He was willing to save them. And is he able then to change them? Yes. And we have to spread that gospel. Not the gospel that you come to God and then clean yourself up. 
No, you come to God, and then you come to God, and then you come to God, and then you come to God. And that's it. That's your responsibility. Humility and faith. Come to God in humility. Come to God in faith. Come to God in humility. Come to God in faith. And he does everything. He does all the works. Paul says, I'm so glad. I don't do any, any works, yet I work more abundantly than you all. Yet not I. It's the grace that works in me. It's grace that produces work in our lives, not our efforts. And maybe... Or maybe you're concerned because you don't see good works and you think you should in your own life. Or maybe in your husband's life or your wife's life and you're like, I'd like to see more good works in your life or my life. I get that. But we have to do things the Lord's way. Approach his throne in humility and faith and abide in Jesus. Wait upon him morning, noon, and evening. Wait and watch and then you'll see fruit grow in your life and in your friends' lives. And maybe you look at your life and you openly confess that I don't even care. You've either given up long ago any hope of having a life pleasing to God, or it just doesn't fit into your self-centered way of living right now. And I invite you to repent. I invite you to come to Jesus and ask him for a new heart. I challenge you to see for yourself what God would do in your life if you would humble yourself and trust his word and his grace. And I warn you that God is love, God is mercy, God is grace, but God is also judge and justice. And now is the time to be forgiven and follow him. Now, not later. Now is the time to receive his grace in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, I believe and I want to believe. I want to believe more. I want to believe, Lord God, that you would give me all that I ask, as you said, Jesus, to pray. And if we pray in your name, with your heart, God, that everything we'd ask would be given Lord, I pray you to help me to believe and trust that with more of my heart. And God, I ask, Lord, for your forgiveness of all the times that I have tried to work things out in my own strength, in my own efforts, my own works, and I got these works mixed up and mixed around. And Lord, my time with you, my my heart of trust and humility and faith, Lord God, was not the number one priority in my heart. And my heart was set on other things. And Jesus, we all want to trust you. We all believe in your grace. And Lord, we all humble ourselves now to ask you for your grace. Lord, we believe that you are God's Son and that you are God yourself, that perfect representation of, of the Father. And we believe that you gave your life as a ransom for our sin. And we confess all that sin to you. And we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we repent of our commitment to sin and our commitment to follow ourselves and we turn to you. Lord, we ask you to come into our lives and fill us with your Holy Spirit. 
Lord, as we continue to abide with you, that you would produce fruit in our lives that glorifies the Father. Lord, we love you. And Lord, help us to love you more. In your name we pray. Amen.